Hello and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. Today I'm joined by Cormac Lucy, a columnist on economics for the Sunday Times, a chartered accountant and lecturer in business finance at IMI. We're going to be talking about financial leadership in a crisis, both at the moment of crisis and all those ways to survive the initial onslaught, but also how to use financial levers to grow out of a crisis as a stronger organisation. Now, Cormac, generally I do pretend to know a little bit about the subject, but today I'm coming from a, a naive place of ignorance, um, although I'm hoping to use that to our advantage. Um, an idiot isn't afraid to ask the, the fundamentals, as they say. Um, as I said, we're going to cover the moment of crisis, how to grow out of it, and also touch on the macroeconomic situation in Ireland and how it might affect ordinary businesses. Um, I'd also like to say at the outset that we're going to try in general to talk about this through the lens of a leader of a sort of SME sized business. Essentially, we want to talk about those leaders and organizations without an army of lawyers, tax advisors and accountants on hand. However, if you are working for in a multinational, a huge amount of it will be relevant to uh, particularly when you apply to sort of that department and divisional financial management. So Cormac, long intro. Hello. How are you? How are things? Very good, thank you. Thanks, you. Um, so I'm going to start at that moment of crisis. Um, a, a lot of people will have, got, will have gone through this already, but let's sort of go back. When a crisis hits, um, on a financial perspective, what's the first thing you're checking? Is it cash on hand, money you're owed, debt repayments, or do you just simply have to gather up all the information? I think you, you've got to sit back and think carefully about the implications of the crisis for you and your organisation. Uh, you, you may not be able to wait for all the information to come in. If we look at the current uh, pandemic, there are loads of really important things we simply do not know about this pandemic. We, we don't know whether there will be a vaccine. Yeah. If one comes, we don't know when it will come. Uh, we don't know if it doesn't come, uh, is it going to come back? Are people who have already had it at risk of getting it again or will they be immune from it? So I think leaders, the first thing uh, a business leader really has to do is think carefully themselves uh, insofar as they can, what this means for them and their organization, and also to think, okay, what do I not know? Uh, who, who might I consider approaching now for, for help on this aspect of my problems or that aspect of my problems? And, and who is Sorry, yeah. I think with this pandemic, it's especially difficult because uh, th there are a swathe of businesses. If we, if we take tourism as an example, mm -hmm. uh, they are going to be fundamentally that there's a high risk they will be out of business in effect until such time as either a vaccine arrives or so much of the population has gone through the uh, has been exposed to the virus that is no longer a risk and we're out the far side of the crisis. And goodness knows how long that is going to take. So I, I, I saw estimates between, on, on your side between 12 and 30 odd months. Well, that's on the assumption that uh, the official Irish government data to this point, early May, roughly 20,000 people have uh, got the virus. And if we just simplify uh, things and say that they all happened in the last month. So yeah. what that suggests is we can expose 20,000 Irish people to this virus each month without overloading our health system. Now, there's 5 million of us. Even if we were just to aim for 3 million and get to 60 percent 
uh, and hopefully get some sort of herd immunity. That is going to take over 10 years. Um, so that's not re- it's not really an option for us to remain locked down uh, or in a form of sco- social quarantine for that length of time. Uh, so th- these are the sorts of challenges. There's nobody there who can an- who, who, who can turn around and give a business leader an answer if mm-hmm. the business leader asks that, le- that, that, that expert, how long is this going to last? Nobody knows. So you're, you're having to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty. So uh, you mentioned that sort of who you're going to call. Who is that first call um, do you make um, when that did this once? It didn't creep up on us. It came reasonably quickly. But I, I presume there's a lot of penny drop moments that happened around sort of February. Who's that sort of phone call that you make? I think there's probably a series of phone calls. Uh, I think that the most sensible people to call first would be fellow business leaders in, in, in similar sectors or in your own sector to try and get a sense of, of what they're thinking and sharing knowledge. And do they know something you don't know? Do you know something they don't know? And the, the point of ringing fellow business leaders is they're the ones who are going to best understand the predicament you now find yourself in. And they're the ones who are thinking of things from your perspective and may be able to offer uh, some useful advice directly aimed at your needs. Uh, I think the next thing to think about is, and and I don't know if there's anybody you can call on this, but you really need to give very heavy thought to the question of what will be, are likely to be the long-term effects of this pandemic for business in my sector and for my business model. Mm. So if you're an airline and we're going to have to do social distancing, or if you're a restaurant and we're going to need social distancing for, for, for patrons from different households, uh, that is a, at risk of completely blowing up any notion of a profitable business model as we know it today. Mm. You know, if, 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 so there was a hoo-ha there uh, yesterday because uh, photographs emerged of an Aer Lingus flight from Belfast to London, and it was packed. <laughs> and, and in theory, we're meant to be sitting, you know, maybe there should have been uh, one empty seat beside every occupied seat. Yeah. Even, even that falls far short of the two metre uh, distance that were recommended. So if airlines are, are forced to leave 50 percent of their seats empty for social distancing reasons, uh, even Ryanair, the most profitable, uh, efficient airline in Europe, is not going to be able to operate profitably there because its uh, break even load factor is, is around 70 percent. So, so an average Ryanair flight needs 70% of the seats sold uh, for it to operate at a profit. So I, I think the second big, you know, having spoken to, to colleagues, I think then you need to really think about what are the implications of this for, for my business model. Uh, now, it might be your business model is going to be a beneficiary of this. Maybe you are in the courier business, yeah. you're, you're transporting goods for Amazon or whatever. Uh, so, so maybe you've got to scale up rather than scale down. Uh, but I think that's the, the second big question. And I suppose the third thing I would, I would suggest uh, business leaders think about is what's your cash position? Yeah. If, if, if this crisis was to continue indefinitely, uh, how long could you keep going with your current cash? If you secondly then were to borrow to the maximum extent, 
how long could you keep going under that scenario where you were maxed out in your borrowings? Yeah, I want to return to borrowing in a minute. Um, I'd imagine there's nothing worse uh, than a financial crisis for causing like genuine panic in even an experienced CEO. In in your experience, uh, is there any advice just to sort of uh, reorientate yourself in that moment? I make lists, you know, to see what I can do. Is there any of those uh, things that you can sort of get just get a get a hold of the situation? I think the simplest one is it's the same sort of crisis for everybody. And if they can manage it, I can manage it. So it's it's really one's human instinct might be fear and and flight, uh, but a business leader isn't allowed to uh, run away from their post. So you have to face up to it and try to gather your thoughts and your emotions so that you can uh, act in a logical and coherent way in the face of this, even though this is hugely uncertain. Even though you are doomed to make mistakes today with incomplete information as we operate, that in the fullness of time are going to look a bit goofy. Uh, but that's not because it was a goofy decision. It's because you made it at a time when you were operating with incomplete information. I've no doubt that uh, when there's some sort of official inquiry into the government's response to this crisis, there are going to be individual decisions that with 2020 hindsight are going to look foolish. But mm-hmm. if, if you say to myself, I will never make a foolish, um, uh, make a decision that looks foolish in retrospect, you will decide nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also say there's a great deal of evidence that sort of public are uh, a great deal more likely to support those sort of decisions in these moments. Yeah, well, the public knows that we have to have somebody with cogent leadership running the show and they're humans and therefore they may get it wrong. But as long as they are approaching things in a logical, coherent fashion uh, and what they suggest sounds sensible, that's likely to win support. Um, I want to uh, sort of go back into sort of the internal um, machinations of a, of a business once it goes into sort of crisis mode. Should you start having a working group? If you do, who should be on that working group? What should be like the number one agenda each day? Should it be cash on hand? Talk us through that. If you're in a crisis, big decisions need to be made. You have to make uh, difficult prioritizations. That can't be done by a group. It has to be done by the chief executive. Now, the chief executive may consult that group, that's fine, and may discuss this with several people before arriving at a decision. But essentially, uh, this is something that has to be driven by the chief executive and and perhaps one or two key associates, maybe a chief operating officer. So somebody has to make the tough call. So if, for example, you arrive at a conclusion that our business model is gravely afflicted by the pandemic and is likely to suffer. If if you're running a chain of pubs, for example, Mm. people may be reluctant to go to pubs, even if they're permitted, because they're just saying to themselves, well, I'm worried about the risk. So if you're running a, a chain of pubs, you may have to make difficult decisions about reducing staff numbers, you, you can't satisfy everybody, so you have to make difficult priority calls. And that really can only be done by the chief executive and the guided, with him or her guided by their, their senior executive team. 
Okay, so we, we've talked a lot about sort of gathering information and, and checking stuff. What's the first sort of almost positive thing you're looking to do? Is it increasing immediate cash flow? Is it arranging investments so you might see more sustainable cash flow at a, at a predicted point? You know, wh- where are you focusing uh, your efforts? I'm afraid, Hugh, it's far more basic than that. <laughs> I'm, I'm focusing on survival. Yeah. In the first instance. Uh, if, if we look at most recent chief executive and chief finance officer polling data from the United States, there's a big drop in capital expenditure plans. Uh, and, and that makes absolute sense. Yeah. If, if, if your business volumes are down, it should be a very easy matter for the business tooled up as it was for February levels of business. It should be no difficulty for the business to cope with business volumes in October if they're markedly lower than they were in February. Mm. Uh, so CapEx reduction is, is probably right up there as one of the first things you're going to be doing uh, in order to conserve cash. We saw uh, Arista had a conference call last week. They're cutting all CapEx unless it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. Mm. Uh, and then you are hunkering down and going into cash management mode. Uh, I've worked for two businesses which were on the edge of uh, insolvency. Uh, and I was head of finance in both of those organizations. Mm. And the, the big, big shift that takes place in the finance function in companies uh, facing that scenario is instead of a, a backward looking focus where you're looking to record transactions properly, uh, things shift to a forward-looking cash flow planning focus where you're looking to manage the company's cash to make sure that the company survives. So that, that's the first, I, th- I think that'll be the, if, if you have a, a, a financially fragile company, the first thing they need to be do, doing, in fact, they may, they're probably already doing it, yeah, is yeah. paying a lot of attention to cash flow management. And in terms of, of that cash flow management, borrowing, um, I presume there's going to be a fair amount of support from the government at the moment. What would be your advice, uh, again, for CEOs, leaders, thinking about borrowing to get them over those cash credit crunch almost uh, restrictions that they're under at the moment? Or is that a stupid question? It's a, it's a very important question, but it's 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 so important. It uh, I'm 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 pondering my answer. <laughs> it's it makes sense to borrow if you're going to make money out of the transaction. Mm. So if, if I borrow money to buy a house and the value of my house is growing at 5% and the interest rate on my loan is 3%, I'm profiting from yeah. borrowing. And if I borrow money to keep a very profitable business alive, that is likely to, to pay off. Mm. Whereas if I'm borrowing money to keep something alive that uh, whose business model may have been fundamentally damaged by this pandemic, uh, that may already have been in a financially fragile state going into the crisis, then I must, I, I, I'm at risk then of just delaying a reckoning. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and delaying everybody's ability to get on at the next stage of their life. So it, the question about should you turn to borrowing, it really hinges on 
how important survival is, whether you can turn that borrowing to your long-term financial advantage, or whether alternatively, you're just putting off the evil day uh, and maybe we're better off facing those evil days earlier rather than later so we can get on to other things. Um, I'm being very unfair to you in a lot of ways because I'm giving you these broad questions that could be applied so differently to different sectors and different businesses. So let's just take that question of borrowing and look at, for example, a robust tourism business, which always operates fairly on the margins. You know, tourism always has that, that margins, but they've been going for 30 years. They always make a steady profit, but they have seen 70 percent of the next 12 months business gone. Should they be saying to themselves, should they be going to the bank and saying, we need to borrow that lost income for a year and, you know, we'll be back up again in 10 years. Well, Hugh, well, that mightn't be the greatest example of a sector to choose <laughs> because uh, we're, uh, Ireland is, I, I would reckon, I've never seen formal official data on this, but I would reckon we're, we're a massive uh, tourism importer. What yeah. I mean by that is we probably, we Irish probably spend a lot more money on tourism outside Ireland than outsiders spend here on tourism. Mm-hmm. So if after the crisis, people still want tourism, but they are allergic to tourism abroad, or let's say Spain says you can, you can come in and fly to Spain, but you'd have to spend two weeks in quarantine, proving you're not carrying the virus like New Zealand has at present. Well, then what we could see is we could see a massive shift towards domestic tourism. Uh, so your, your, your 30 year established business that that has been kind of doing all right, but not doing brilliantly, uh, might suddenly find themselves in, in hot demand. Uh, it's, it's funny you say that. I, have, I had a wedding planned in September in Spain. That is not going to happen. And we're going to go to Ireland somewhere instead. Yeah. And I, I can imagine. Uh, so, so if you're running a hotel in, in uh, let's say you're running a two star hotel in Lanzarote, they, they could be very badly affected if there's a significant fall off in air transport volumes. Uh, you know, they, they depend on air travel uh, to, to, to sustain their business. And all of the indicators from uh, the air travel sector suggests it may take two or three or four years uh, after the lockdown ends, whenever that happens, before uh, we, we get back up to 2019 uh, air travel volumes. Yeah, so many implications. Um, I really quick question, because I, I think this will be a rare occasion, but I think it's good to cover. If you have saleable assets, uh, but you know that they'll be more valuable in the future, should you sell the assets or borrow against its value uh, to try and get through the immediate crisis? Borrow against if you think the value of the asset will go up, uh, then there's no point selling under distressed sale conditions. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm reckoning we're facing distressed sale conditions. But if you look at the price of secondhand company assets as represented by stock market indices, uh, they're showing surprising strength. So it will be interesting when, when data emerges in the coming months uh, to see what happens to the, the, the value of companies being sold privately, uh, the value of large corporate assets being sold privately, whether they take a significant hit as a result of the pandemic or whether like stock market prices, they, they, they take a bit of a bump, but nothing too significant. Yeah, I, w- I want to actually come back to the stock market recently because it's, 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 it's been interesting, let's just say, over the last couple of months. 
Uh, we're we're going to stick to the moment of crisis and ask a really the tough question. Uh, the people, people and their jobs. As far as I can see, this is a real balancing act at the moment. On the one hand, wages are by far the biggest cost business. But on the other hand, hiring and training new staff is a costly business. So letting them go now would cost you in the long run. What are the things leaders should be weighing here? Forget about the recent past and forget about the present. How many of these people will I need one year after the lockdown lifts? And we're likely to see some... What, what recessions tend to do, Hugh, is they tend to give added impetus to trends that were already underway. Mm. So we're likely to see an added impetus to uh, internet shopping. Yeah. We're likely to see uh, public transport taking a very big hit in, in, in traveler volumes just because it, it's difficult to maintain social distancing at rush hour, which is when yeah. you need the service most. We're likely to see a big shift toward people cycling. Uh, I was listening to British radio this morning and uh, Halfords, the, the bicycle manufacturers, they, they issued almost a sort of a, a reverse profit warning, uh, you know, warning stock markets that their business volumes have just exploded wow. as people are buying uh, push bikes, uh, either as a means for, for domestic leisure and or uh, to get to and from work without being uh, the danger is that we just we'll end up uh, inhaling the fumes of the guys cycling three yards <laughs> in front of us. So uh, maybe maybe it's time to uh, to buy a company manufacturing gas masks or something. <laughs> um, just before we leave the moment of crisis, a lot of, a lot of, what are the the things that leaders do wrong? You know, what are the common mistakes people make when I and, fi- and let's focus on that financial angle. What are those common mistakes people make? I think holding on too long. Uh, hang, holding on to a business model or a cost structure that may have been suitable in the past, but is no longer suitable. I think it's a lack of uh, flexibility and agility. Yeah. And, and, and one, of, one of the problems we have as uh, human beings, we, we fancy ourselves as thinking beings. You know, an animal knows but a human knows he knows. <laughs> uh, but really, if you look at human decision-making, we're, we're less humans 1.0 and more chimps 2.0. Yeah. And an, an awful lot of our decision-making is uh, it's emotional. It, it, it's based on our feelings rather than our thoughts. And we use our thinking to justify the decision that our feelings brought us to. And if you've run a business successfully for many years, if it has made you successful as an individual business person, you're going to be extraordinarily reluctant to let go of that at a deep subconscious emotional level, even though rationally uh, that may be what is called for. So I I think uh, flexibility, uh, the the biggest mistake business people can make is, is to hang on to a losing position uh, for too long. I think that was almost your common thread, really, of that the crisis sort of rethink, reimagining, and then sort of acting on the the decisions that you make. All right. So let's let's get on to the growth out of a crisis. Let's start with where a lot of people are right now, transferring their services to be delivered digitally. There will be a lot of costing going on right now to do this. What are the things you should be looking at uh, when restructuring like this, often quite fundamentally in the way you deliver to your customers? 
I think it'll be very clear to you where you're coming from. What won't be nearly as clear, but will be even more important is, is where are you going to? Uh, what I mean by that is what will be the uh, business processes, the, the, the employee headcount, the, the structure of the organization, and critically, if this is going to work uh, long term, what will that look like financially? So you mentioned at the outset that I'm a columnist with the Sunday Times. Well, there is a there is a sector in complete transition as uh, print newspaper sales continue a, a steady decline. Advertising declines even faster. Uh, and on the flip side of that, then there is an attempt to build up a, a digital footprint as, as a substitute. So. I suppose that the question mark, if you were taking the newspaper sector as an example, is if we take current growth in digital subscribers and uh, extrapolate that out five, 10 years, what sort of cost structure could we carry in that environment? Mm-hmm. And how does that match up against the cost structure we have today? Um, it seems like, just as you were talking there, just writing this down, might be a really good idea for CEOs just on a Friday afternoon or whatever, just to say, what will my business look like in a year and just write it down and see what decisions they can make. Yeah, and, and, and the simpler you can do that, the better. You know, yeah. Page, page and a half, no more. Mm. Uh, it, it's really, you're, you're not going to get marks for precision. <laughs> uh, and nobody's going to be looking at this in two years' time saying yeah. you, you screwed up. It's, it's more a case of imagining what the future is going to look at and imagining, therefore, uh, what structures, what processes, uh, what financials are we going to have in that uh, changed world? Um, again, very, very broad question. Um, ongoing investments. Um, do you stick or twist right now? You're talking about capital investments, everyone else pulling back. Um, is that a, just a general principle, just pull back on those big investments? Totally, because if, if yeah. you, unless you're in a, a sector that is already undergoing massive growth where capital expenditure is a significant constraint. But yeah. for most businesses, they're going to be reopening uh, to at, at operating at lower business volumes. And, and therefore, the, the capital stock they had before the crisis should be more than sufficient uh, to carry them through until such time as they can see what way the economy will be developing uh, post-crisis. And innovation as well, there'd be a lot of, would have been a lot of projects going on of, of, um, of trying to innovate new ways of, of delivering revenue, new revenue streams, all that sort of stuff. Is now the time to ramp up investment in innovation if you, if you can't afford to do so, of course. It almost feels like investing when the stock market is low, if you, if you know what I mean, that, that you're getting there before everybody else. Um, and it's a, it would be an advantage to invest right now in innovation. Am I again wrong there? I think I think you're right. Actually, I think I think instability is the friend of innovation. Mm. Uh, it's going to be easier for uh, insurgent product services to succeed in times of flux when things are up for grabs, you know, market share, for example, than uh, in conditions of uh, static stability. So. Many companies will have furloughed staff or cut down salaries or working hours. I think I know the answer to this already just by judging by our conversation. But what is the best way to row that back or is there a best way? 
Um, I know we're not returning to the old normal, but what's the best way to return to the new normal? Uh, I think it's a case of working out reliable measures of your likely business volume and matching staff to meet volume. Mm. And you, you may want to approach it the way the government is doing with the uh, gradual relaxation of lockdown conditions. You may want to build up at a conservative pace. You, you, you may not want a situation where you take back staff only to have to let them go a, a second time six weeks later because you you misjudged the the business you were going to have and therefore you've, you've too many people standing around. That could be happening quite a lot now though, right? For restaurants, for example, they don't know if they're going to be opening up in three months time, for example. The restaurants are in a, in a very, very difficult position. Mm-hmm. And, uh, even, even if they are legally allowed to reopen, that, that there are two additional questions then. One is, do customers want to go to the restaurants? Probably they do. But the second then is, how, how, do, they, how do they make their business model work uh, with people at distance? And I think for the majority of restaurants, that's going to be very, very difficult. Are you seeing any, uh, around the web or j- just for your context, uh, contacts, any creative solutions coming out of the crisis uh, in terms of, of what might be the new normal? Uh, again, let's focus on that financial end. I'm thinking of less pay, but more benefits while cash is tight, reduced, reducing premise sizes, people can now work for better from home, et cetera, et cetera. Anything that you see that you, you think that will actually stick? There's nothing immediately obvious uh, that jumps out at me, Hugh. Uh, no, I, I, I just there's just nothing. Just I could go down through various industries and say who I think would be winners and who would be losers, but there's no big. Uh, you got to put your money on this, and it'll make you loads of money. Opportunities yeah, yeah. that I see out there right now at the minute. There, there are a lot of people like Amazon or uh, Netflix uh, who are well positioned to profit from what's happening now. But as for new startups or activities in new areas that will benefit from it, uh, I don't see any right now, but I'm sure that they're going to come down the tracks. If you were in charge of a business, uh, what sort of projects, particularly in the financial sphere, would you be setting up to get your business in great shape coming out of this? Um, Again, really tough question to answer, but what are those areas you say, right, let's keep these fundamentally strong? I'd be asking a somewhat different question to you. I'd be, I'd be asking my finance people to, to do some sort of scenario planning based on different dates of business resuming at normal volume and based on business resuming at different proportions of previous volume. The, the thing is, one of the dangers of CHIMP 2.0 is that we prefer to plan for, we prefer to envisage one future yeah. And plan for it. And th- the reality is we're, we're in an enormously uh, turbulent scenario situation at the minute and several different scenarios could plausibly unfold. And uh, businesses need a to have the mental uh, agility to cope with different scenarios materializing and b they need to shift the balance between prioritizing profitability and resilience. So I went out to work in, the, uh, in, in Eastern Germany shortly after German reunification in a large mm-hmm. industrial bakery. 
And at the back of the bakery, they had their uh, yard for storing coal to fuel the ovens. And when I got there just after German reunification, they had nine months worth of coal (laughs) stored there. Because in the old East German days, you didn't know when uh, supply might be broken, when it might come. So if you had the chance, you stopped up in advance. And we were saying to ourselves, what a bunch of fools. We're going to run this down and we're going to make a great, we get a great cash boost from running down our inventories. Whereas now, if you're thinking about the future, uh, you're thinking, my goodness, we, 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 we do need greater resilience in our supply chains. Mm. We need we may need greater levels of precautionary inventories in our business so that we can keep going. Uh, even if some of our key suppliers drop out, we can keep going for longer than, than would otherwise be the case. Yeah. So I, I think it's agility in uh, thinking and conceptualizing what may happen and a greater focus on resilience in terms of how the business operates and what external shocks it can suffer without forcing it to close down. Uh, just on a small tangent, do you think the sort of just-in-time supply chain, we, we heard a lot of that in, in Brexit, do you think that will start to be loosened up and, and not be quite so uh, on the margins? Yes, especially if your supply chains are very extended around the globe, mm. if, if, if they're uh, transcontinental. And, and we already saw this uh, to a degree, or we have already seen this trend uh, after the, the tsunami in Japan knocked out the Fukushima nuclear plant. And that in turn then led to a drop in Japanese electricity production, which in turn led to uh, shutdowns at Japanese car manufacturing plants, which meant that uh, Nissan Sunderland plant <laughs> couldn't operate because it, it was missing key components. The just-in-time thing got interrupted. And uh, I, I understand things changed following that. So, so people are are building up precautionary inventories, or have been uh, even prior to this pandemic. And I just want to talk something very specific: uh, cash levels to financial. Because in tw- the two thousand eight financial crisis, I seem to remember reading, I can't remember what Middle Eastern bank uh, had thirty percent cash reserves, so they were fine. And then the big conversation was, okay, in the future, uh, major Western banks will have bigger cash reserves. Has that happened? Um, and in the business sense, should business leaders be starting to say to themselves, I should have a certain amount or a certain percentage of cash all the time in the bank, or at least the access to liquidity, I suppose? Well, the, the access to uh, large cash balances and having access to cash it has been a consistent practice of Ryanair the last 10 years. So in uh, my diploma in business finance course at the uh, IMI, we look an awful lot at Ryanair and its financials because it's a business everybody is is pretty familiar with and it has some very interesting aspects to its financial statements. And one of these is the super large cash balances that the company holds. So at its last balance sheet date in March, the company had, I think, four or five billion euros of cash. No idea. Yes. Yeah, so imagine, imagine if you went out to the pub on a Friday evening and you had five billion of loose change in your pockets. You, 
you wouldn't get out the door, never mind into the pub. But there are reasons for Ryanair to have large cash balances. Uh, one is they're paid in advance by their customers. So if you look at the other side of Ryanair's balance sheet, its liabilities, they, as of March, had about two billion of flight revenue that they had received from customers but hadn't yet delivered. This was money paid in advance by customers. So yeah. if they have four or five billion of cash on the asset side, well, they owe two billion of services on the liability side, and they've got the cash in advance, if you like, from the customers. Uh, another reason airlines uh, typically would tend to have uh, larger cash balances is they have that their profits are enormously sensitive to their business volume. Mm. And what I mean by that is, uh, if there's a Ryanair flight leaving Dublin for Stansted this afternoon and there are 150 seats on the aircraft and 149 are full. We'll imagine this is pro-COVID, pre-COVID. 149 seats are, fill, are full and I pay for the last seat. The incremental cost to Ryanair of flying an extra puncher is yeah. tiny. Yeah. Few bob, extra fuel, uh, that's about it. Uh, so th their profits are highly sensitive to their business volumes. And that means if there's a recession and business volumes drop, their profits drop very heavily. So I think in the future, we're going to see more companies uh, and indeed more individuals focusing on building up precautionary cash balances. And by the way, we've already seen this happening in the, uh, in the personal area. Irish household debt that's families and individuals borrowing money it's way down on where it was in 0809 yeah and one of the experiences of the great depression in the 1930s was it made a generation or two allergic to debt <laughs> uh, and we may see something similar in ireland post our financial crisis a decade ago and we may see that get a further impetus with uh, people saying to themselves, do you know what, I need a precautionary cash position. There was a study by the Federal Reserve in America a number of years ago, and, and they concluded that 40% uh, of American households had no spare cash to cope with an emergency. Paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And that is, uh, I, wonder, I just wonder what is happening to those people right now. Uh, it must be very difficult for them. Yeah, and they they don't have quite the social security net as they would over here. Um, just before we get out of this growing out of crisis, just we talked about sort of writing things down on a page. Um, a lot of people will have already thrown out their business plans that they worked on last year. But is it best to literally throw them out and start again or update figures to do it quicker and, and, and try and get to some sort of semblance of data quicker? A bit of both. A bit of both. Uh, before they do the plan, they should just sit down at an empty table with a blank sheet of paper. And on that page, write down in sentences no longer than three words, what is different now to pre-pandemic? Mm. And what are the implications of what is... In other words, think. <laughs> 
think first. And that's the hardest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but just do it at a conceptual level. What has changed? And, and if you need a, a, a sort of a format to structure your thoughts, what has happened to my revenue? What has happened to my costs? What's happening to my profit? What has happened to my assets? What's happened to my liabilities? What's happened to my equity? Uh, and, and on top of all of that, well, what's happening business volumes? What's happening uh, profitability? Is my business model fundamentally damaged? Or am I going to be one of the winners of, of this pandemic? One of the lucky ones. Um, so let's look at the, the macroeconomic uh, situation. What's your general sense of what's happening in the Irish economy right now? I've seen various figures of GDPs dropping 20, 30 percent. What, what's your sense of what's happening? Uh, the economy has been put in a form of induced coma by the government, uh, where uh, activity has been suspended to a considerable degree and, and, and financial life supports have been stuck into the patient so that the doctors can work on the patient and hopefully find a, a resolution of the pandemic. Mm. And after that, we, 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 we uh, let the patient out of the hospital and back out into the real world. My worry is that if, if you look at past recoveries, recessions happen pretty quickly. Yeah. Over uh, a one or two year period, recoveries take place much more slowly. And why is that? Well, one reason is second round effects. So uh, we may be forced to close and then some businesses that may push them over the edge into insolvency. So they don't reopen mm. or other businesses reopen, but with just half the staff. And then another second round effect that responds to that is we're all a bit on edge. So there's a tendency for people who who have the capacity to increase their savings rates. Mm. So, so if they're saving more, they're spending less. And that's a further uh, dampener on, on economic activity. So my, and, and, and the final point I would make about this is the international recovery that was ended with the arrival of the pandemic had been on the go since March 2019. Mm. So 2009. Sorry, sorry, 2009. Excuse me. Thank you. Uh, so, so, so the point is the recovery had been a long recovery already, and there were already significant signs that we were due a recession. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, there would have been an international recession within the next year or two, whether or not the coronavirus arrived. Sorry, there's all that last year about the inverted yield curves and graphs. Correct. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Mm. Uh, and there were a whole load of articles. And this, this is Chimp 2.0. A whole load of articles came out saying, oh, the yield curve is very useful, but it doesn't apply this time. <laughs> yeah. Because people didn't want to face the prospect we might be around the corner from a recession. Well, do you know what? It turns out the yield curve was right again. Mm. Uh, so... So for all of those reasons, I, I'm, I'm not that optimistic that we're going to get a, a sharp V-shaped recovery. Uh, I think it'll be more uh, gradual than that. Um, and, and just talking about Ireland, I was looking through, you sent through a very interesting uh, presentation to me, sort of, it looked like you had you'd been rearranging or arranging your thoughts. I was looking at the fundamentals of Irish economy before the crisis. The graph seemed to be going up. 
the fundamentals seem to be strong. Are, are we in a decent position once this ends? You know, is our is our economy fundamentally strong? It, it's so strong you wouldn't believe it. If if you were an an alien in outer space, and you were told by your leader, Hugh. We're going to send you to planet Earth to be born as a human and to live as a human. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is you can choose where you're going to be born and what year you're going to be born. You really, you, there wouldn't be that many candidates ranking above Ireland 2020 when you, when you weigh it all up. And the biggest strength of the Irish economy is our strong foreign direct investment base. Mm. And it really is difficult to overstate the influence uh, that those foreign multinationals have exerted, the positive influence financially in terms of developing skill levels, in terms even of uh, boost, you know, changing social attitudes. Mm. The risks to that are that since around about since the global financial crisis, there has been a, a retreat of globalization. Yeah. Now, now that there is still growth in globalization, but at a much slower pace. And we can see that the, uh, you know, a key issue in the US presidential election is going to be relations with China. And it's going to be, we Americans good, them Chinese bad. Yeah. We, we can see President Trump is even talking about repatriating U.S. foreign-owned pharma businesses. Now, if that were to happen in Ireland, that would be a, a, a mortal blow. Now, it's, it's, it's a very unlikely to happen. Yeah, uh, unlikely. For, for a number of reasons. Number one, I don't. It, it's only 50-50 that Trump gets re-elected. Number two, it's unlikely he will uh, carry the house with him. Number three. EU membership has been uh, has really buttressed Ireland's uh, foreign multinational sector because the the tariff walls that champions of Brexit so object to mean that if you are an American multinational and you do want a significant presence in the EU, you really have to have a, a facility in the EU to operate within the tariff walls, and Ireland is best placed. To uh, to win and to keep uh, businesses like that. That's interesting. Um, it, it's funny, just as we're talking, it does seem to be like the probably started in the eighties, nineties. That sort of cycle of globalization and the love of debt seems to be sort of ending as a as a cultural phenomenon. Um, I don't know what to think about. It. At least at least lessening. Um, one of the fundamentals that is str not strong. Uh, quite the opposite is I would describe it the mountain of debt Ireland now sits on. What can be the long-term plan for this and what effects will it have on the ordinary Irish business, if any, over the next you know, five to ten years? Well, we, we uh, don't have a mountain of debt. We, we, we have a, a mountain range of debt. <laughs> uh, so you've got uh, government debt. Yeah. You've got... Uh, corporate debt, household debt, and then you've got undeclared debt, hidden debt. So if we just look at government debt, uh, that's about 200 billion uh, at the minute, but that's going to rise fast as the government runs large deficits. 
as a consequence of reduced tax revenues and increased government spending. And it's doing this in order to try to keep the economy going. And mm. that makes sense. Now, the thing to say about that government debt is relative to any measure of our national output, it has come down very, very significantly since 2010. Mm. Contrast that with Italy and France. Their debt levels relative to their national output have risen over the last 10 years, even though under the European Growth and Stability Pact, they have been supposed to be in decline. So it's no surprise to see France and Italy leading the chorus, saying we must mutualize our debt. So, sorry, I just want to go back on that. Just again, I'm a naive ignorance. So what you're saying there is Ireland have essentially almost like you're talking about with that. Um, you buy a house at three percent and it's going up at five percent. We've we've got that balance right of where we borrowed, but we've been able to invest to produce something of greater value than that borrowing. Is that well, the other thing is we, we, we have actually done austerity mm. and we have managed to limit our debt in absolute terms while at the same time growing our economy quite considerably in the last decade okay. so that our capacity to bear a given level of debt is very, very considerably greater today than it was during the financial crisis. So even though the debt level is large, in relative terms, it's a lot smaller than it was. And we were running, at, I think you, you actually said it there, Manu, we were running at a surplus for a, a fair few years, right? Briefly. Briefly. Uh, because we did build up that cash reserve that we then dipped into during this crisis. Oh, sorry, we, 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 we had surpluses back before the crisis, yeah. But since the current, uh, the global financial crisis, government has, has intermittently had surpluses. But that, that, that's government debt. Household and corporate debt in Ireland way down on a decade ago. Yeah. No problems there uh, from, a, from a macro perspective. The final thing then is hidden debt. And we have about, depending on how you measure it, uh, four or five hundred billion of off balance sheet debt arising from the fact that the state pension scheme is not funded. So if you make a contribution through pay-related social insurance, your contribution does not go into a fund which is invested. So when you reach 65 or 67, you can take the money out. Your money goes straight to paying people who paid into the system 40 years ago to give them their pensions this week. And that's so we're not earning any money over 40 years on your investment no, to the government. We're running an intergenerational uh, chain letter. <laughs> and, and the difficulty is, as long as the balance of pensioners and workers remains relatively unchanged, that system can be sustained. But what's well, happening now is people are getting ever older, people's working lives are getting shorter, uh, and a big imbalance is developing. And that's likely to be a medium-term problem uh, in the future. Let's let's finish on this one. I, I always feel talk of financials quickly becomes negative, and um, so I'd like to finish on a on a positive note. For all those CEOs and leaders out there who um, have spent way too much time with their accountant lately, what are those green shoots they should be looking for and grasping onto? And be um and, and let's look at stuff beyond the stock market. Should they be looking at 
Should they be looking at unemployment rates or the stock market? What should those sort of big macro numbers they should be looking for maybe in three, five, six months time? Well, let's go back to the stock market uh, because that's the thing I, one of the things I would know a bit about. The moment when uh, downturn and bear market typically shifts into upturn and bull market is typically characterized by apathy and depression. People have given up. Mm. And, and one of the reasons I'm a bit skeptical about particularly the US stock markets at the minute is there's been no investor exhaustion moment where they just give up. It's uh, been very strange. Yeah, I, I think they're going to drop. Uh, but so, so the thing is, a lot of the time in business, you're just, you know, Winston Churchill said in World War II, often said in World War II, keep buggering on. <laughs> and you, 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 you're just keeping going almost out of sheer willpower. Yeah. Uh, it's like you're playing in a football match uh, and, and, and there's 20 minutes to go and, and, and you're 2 nil down. And it looks pretty much hopeless, but you keep playing on. Uh, and then out of nowhere, you score a goal. And yeah. suddenly the, the psychology changes. So I think uh, there, there isn't going to be some uh, life of Brian flash of light from the sky <laughs> and a tablet descending saying all will be well now. Quite the opposite. There will it's be no desire. Be, it's, go, it's going to be kind of, you're going to feel just brassed off and hacked off and underappreciated and you're just plugging away because really there's nothing better you can do than just keep plugging away and you may in retrospect notice actually do you know what that was the moment uh, things yeah. were actually turning i have to say um just finish on I've, after living through one financial crisis i felt much more resilient to this one as you say just keep buggering on as being my uh, my mentality exactly um, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much. That was fascinating. I could have picked one of those questions and talked about them for an hour. So thanks so much. Thank you, Hugh. Best luck.